Welcome to Movie Maniacs. Mike Rags and Chuck Curry discussing the greatest movies of all time and all the new films in theaters and streaming that you need to know about. Like us, rate us, share us. Now, here are your hosts, Mike Rags and Chuck Curry. Good evening, everybody. My name is Chuck Curry alongside my co-host, Kenny B. Once again, filling in for Mike Rags. This is Movie Maniacs, our weekly podcast also heard on WWOO. Uh, whoa, whoa, in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and also Ken. Cool, 98.5 WXPM, Phoenixville, Pennsylvania. A uh, lot to talk about this weekend. Our main topic at the end of the show will be our top 10 favorite supporting turns in feature films. Really good uh, subject matter, Ken, very diverse. We could probably did two, 300, but uh, ultimately have to narrow it down to a top it is Super Bowl weekend. The box office will be a little bit lighter this weekend, which is historically accurate. A lot of Super Bowl uh, spots to be had this Sunday with an average price of $7 million for a 30-second commercial. I think we touched on this a few weeks ago, but numerous big, high-profile films will roll the dice and spend that $7 million, including Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantum Media, the new Indiana Jones film, uh, the Flash, which comes out this summer, Fast X, the latest Fast and the Furious film. Also, uh, Scream 6, which is not a big, big budget movie, but moderate enough uh, where they feel they're gonna, they could cultivate a very nice opening weekend with Ghostface, Ghostface in New York City to spend the $7 million on a 30-second spot. Your thoughts, again, on a 30-second spot for $7 million? I think it's a good idea because... I do think the the, uh, the 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 effect of one the spot two the after talk two the repeatability off that spot. Uh, I think it's a good bang for your buck. Very expensive bang, but uh, I, I would roll the dice if I had a movie that I thought was going to do well. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I mean, if you go back, of course, to the launch of the Apple computer years ago, it was a Super Bowl commercial. And there are many of us who will maybe watch the game half-heartedly, but we will watch the commercials. In fact, by the next morning, you'll be able to find a, uh, a YouTube compilation of all the commercials. And people actually, you know, there are contests to vote on the best commercials. So if you're going to try to have a television commercial that's going to be seen, Super Bowl is the time to do it. And in terms of movies coming out this weekend, we have uh, Magic Mike, The Last Dance, which originally was supposed to go straight to HBO Max. The uh, new regime has made a commitment to release all the movies theatrically, so they are going to release Magic Mike, which is the third entry in that uh, pretty successful franchise. Going to roll out on around 1,500 screens, tracking around an 8 to $10 million opening weekend. Reviews are very polarizing uh, for whatever reason. I have not seen the film as of yet, but some people are really turned off by the storyline. Some people thought the chemistry between Chad Tanning and Selma Hayek was uh, very good. So we'll see how that one plays out. Also, the re-release of 20th Century Fox, which is now owned by Disney, Titanic, uh, mostly in IMAX and 4K uh, presentations. It's actually tracking over a $10 million opening weekend, which is an outstanding number for a re Release. I will say this, Ken. Uh, I remember seeing Titanic back at a movie theater when it hit theaters in 1997. Hard to believe it's that long ago. But uh, I was a big fan. I remember about three weeks before it came out, Siskel and Ebert on their 
uh, review show, gave it an early review, gave it a rave, got me really excited. I went with my wife opening weekend on a Friday afternoon at the Regal Theater down in Easton, Pennsylvania. Uh, liked it so much, I wouldn't even take a bathroom break. I remember my bladder almost expo- exploded at a three-hour, ten-minute running time. We went back six more weekends in a row to see it. That was one day of my entire life watching James Cameron's Titanic, but I thought it was worth the time. For this generation who's not seen that movie in a theater, this is a good opportunity. This is one of the greatest movies, I think, ever made, and certainly, I've said this with Mike many a time, and he sort of agreed, I think the best film released since 1997. Your thoughts on Titanic? Well, you know, I'm a, I'm a bit less enthusiastic about it. I thought I thought Titanic was actually two movies. One was about a boat sinking. The other one was about a love story. And, and I wasn't... I, 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 you're right, and that's why I like Dick it so much. Yeah, and they could have actually made it into two movies, and my bladder would have been happy. But, <laughs> um, it, you know, it was, it was good. I thought it was a little bit longer than it needed to be, but it was a very good movie. And I also had to mention as far as you know, Magic Mike, two things. Once, uh, one is I'll never go see a Magic Mike movie because the first one, I was uh, actually vomiting blood from a, um, a bleeding ulcer. And rather than uh, stay with me to see whether I died, uh, my daughter decided to go see Magic Mike in the movie. We know her, her priorities were. But second of all, people don't realize this, but I am the body double for Magic Mike. Okay, so you have some PSAD over Magic Mike, and uh, I, I, I'll, I'll be the judge if, you, you're, if you're the body double in Magic Mike. But I got to tell you, Chad Tang is interesting. He's had a he's had a good career. Has a lot of power uh, in the industry, and he's really made a good comeback in the last couple of years, doing a lot more uh, work and high profile stuff. Uh, I, I before I get a chance to talk about. Um, knock at the cabin which i saw last weekend you get a chance to see anything uh, you want to talk about yeah I, I didn't see any movies i did start i finally finished yellowstone and we'll probably talk about that in a bit but i uh, i yeah, started no. another one uh, that is uh, called poker face uh, with uh, oh. natasha leone she is i as far as a tongue-in-cheek um co- you know comedy comedy drama actress i just absolutely love her yeah, I got to tell you, she did a bit. She came out as a, uh, one of the presenters at the Golden Globe Awards this year, and she did a bit at the end. And her mind is extremely creative, and it holds a ton of uh, ton of dialogue. She, she's uh, actually very appealing, not overly well-known, but uh, she is really good. So did you like the show? I do, and I love the formula. It's something I haven't seen before is you see the crime happen. You see everything that takes place, mm-hmm. and then it flashes back. And puts her into it, you know. She's but she's she's a drifter, and so the last one I saw, it's a murder at a dinner theater. You see the murder, and then it flashes back. She's the waitress. She then works into all those scenes and ends up solving the murder because she can tell whether somebody's lying or not from her training of playing poker. Cool. Uh, I got a chance to see uh, Knock at the Cabin, which is M Night Shyamalan's newest film. Now M Night, uh, infamous for his early start in his career with movies like The Sixth Sense, uh, which was a huge box office hit for Disney and and a critically acclaimed movie that got an Oscar for best, uh, Oscar nomination for best picture, then went up doing doing Unbreakable with Bruce Willis, a movie I absolutely adore, uh, has a huge following, 
Uh, then he did Signs, which also was a big box office hit. Some of the silliness that would later uh, permeate uh, and damage his career started to slip in, but still, that was a good movie. And then uh, once he started doing movies like Lady in the Water uh, and uh, The Happening, his career really took a turn for the worse. But he did bounce back with with uh, the movie Split. Didn't uh, materialize on that with the movie Glass, a movie that me and Mike both really uh, disdain based on some of his creative choices. But uh, here he is with Cabin uh, Knock on Knock at the Cabin, a twenty million dollar production that I thought was pretty effective. Uh, 110 million, 110 minute Twilight Zone like movie uh, about four people who knock on a cabin door. Movie takes right off the bat, basically uh, unfolds his storyline. Four people led by Dave Batista uh, knock on a cabin door. Uh, two fathers who are parents to a, a adopted young girl explain to them in a sort of forced entry into their cabin that one of them has to sacrifice each other in order to save the world from a global apocalypse which will wipe out mankind. As the movie unravels, you start to realize that maybe these guys are telling the truth. This movie's led by an outstanding performance by Dave Bautista, who I had no idea was this good of an actor. He's going to get a ton of work off this movie in serious fare because he's got some serious acting chops, really got involved and understood his character very much. The movie, uh, like the movie The Mist, it reminded me of, it had a really good hook. It hooked me immediately, got sucked in to this. I was very curious about what uh, these four people wanted, were they telling the truth. Uh, for the most part, not totally, but for the most part, it did hold its running time pretty well and maintained its suspense. Not perfectly, but for the most part, it did. I like the last 20 minutes. Uh, it does have somewhat of a dour ending. The book had an even worse, darker uh, ending, so I think this will uh, garner somewhat of a mix. Some people will dig this movie. Some people will be bummed because it has a dour ending, which is the way uh, people think in terms of exit polls. But overall, I give this movie a 7.8 out of 10. If you're an M. Night Shyamalan fan or if you like The Twilight Zone, this is a movie well worth seeing. And I just want to point out one more thing, Ken. Yes, I did review the budget because I think it's cool that they do make movies that are moderate or lower budget, say $20 million or less, use inventiveness, use uh, good technique, good acting, uh, and, and that, I thought, was refreshing. Not everything has to be a $200 million popcorn movie in theaters to be well worth releasing. So, uh, Knock at the Cabin is a movie that I did uh, like. Now, in terms of box office, that movie was number one. It did $14.2 million to place first. 80 for Brady. Uh, actually had a good opening weekend, uh, $12.5 million. They lowered ticket prices in a lot of theaters to try to cultivate an audience. It's expected to have a good hold for weekend number two. Reviews actually were pretty good. I, I thought this movie looked ridiculous, but I guess uh, that uh, it, 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 you know there's a method to its madness. It has a really good cast, led by Jane Fonda, uh, Lily Tomlin, uh, Sally Field, and Rita Moreno, so uh, 80 for Brady has done some damage at the box office. And number three was Avatar Way of Water, uh, another 10.8 million, 37% drop, holding well week to week, over 680 million domestically, 2.2 billion worldwide. Uh, now, this weekend coming up, uh, next weekend as we speak, you have Ant-Man uh, Ant and the Wasp, Quantumania. They had its world premiere. Uh, Twitter reaction was actually 
for the most part, really good. There's always a few naysayers, but for the most part, the, the consensus was the biggest Ant-Man yet, great uh, villain in Khan. Uh, um, Paul Rudd has never been more likable in the role. Is tracking at around $120 million plus opening weekend. So at least 10, the ball is starting to roll somewhat forward on people uh, getting juiced up about seeing movies back in theaters. Uh, I think that's a good thing. Oh, I, I agree. And uh, you know, a couple things. Um, one of the things I think about M. Night Shyamalan is that I, I think his first couple movies, the twist endings were so good that people started expecting more than they were ever going to get. You know, they wanted them to be even more and more creative. Um, I think his early success actually made it difficult for people to like him going forward. So it's good to hear he's back on track. And 80, yeah, I mean, uh, <clears throat> one. I, I was going to say, like, when he did, okay, when he did The Village, what I think, what the problematic aspect of that movie is I think he said, okay, I'm, I'm so now well known for the twist that I'm going to write a script with the twist uh, already written and then build a movie of three quarters, beginning, middle, and third act around the last act twist. And I don't think that's a successful formula to do movies. I mean, I think he hit lightning in a bottle in a, in the, in a most amazing way with the the, the, the sixth sense. I, I, I like this twist a lot in, uh, in, in, in Un- Unbreakable. And I thought Bruce Willis and Sam Jackson gave two great performances in that movie. But, you know, the movie Signs, the thing about Signs is when you watch it, you rewatch it, and I do enjoy it, and I think Mel Gibson is pretty damn good uh, in, in that movie, and it's thought-provoking, and again, it's just, uh, it's an alien invasion movie on a lower budget, and it has a lot of inventiveness in it, but the problem with that movie is you could see some of the, what I always call, how far can a director or, or writer stretch the perennial rubber band of plausibility, and he started to stretch it pretty hard, and then after Signs, he stretched it to the point where the rubber band not only broke, but it couldn't be taped back together. And that really hurt his career. And I've never seen, and a lot will be written about this guy's career, I've never seen somebody come in with such a bang and then have such a creative fall. It's one of the most perplexing stories in the history of, uh, of Hollywood, I think. But I am rooting for him. I think a lot of people are rooting for him because he does have an intriguing mind and I was very happy when I watched Knock at the Cabin and I felt like this feels a little bit more like old school Shalaman so let's see what he's got up his sleeve going forward in the future. I just want to touch base before we get to some movie news and our main topic of our top 10 supporting characters in film. This week the birthday of Joe Pesci who turns 80 years old. I'll let you uh, expand. Give me your thoughts on Joe Pesci. You know it's, it's, it's amazing. I mean I, I, I first discovered him I think a lot of people did uh, in the uh, Lethal Weapon movies, and um, he was that really stupid ride-along, uh, and uh, his career, it's amazing because he can play the absolutely funny total loser, or he can play a mafia don, or he can play a hitman. The guy's got the guy is uh, he's got a lot of range, and he's just such an amazing actor and. Uh, you know, it, the story of Joe Pesci. I mean, when you realize his biggest claim to fame before, uh, at a fairly old age for somebody to start becoming a big-name actor, his claim to fame was bringing Frankie Valli uh, together 
with one of the Four Seasons and uh, really? okay. Bob, uh, Bob uh, Gaddio. Yeah. In fact, uh, Joe Pesci was a little bit younger, but he was a member of that of that uh, neighborhood. And it, they, oh, yeah, I know he was born. He was born in Newark, New Jersey. Joe Pesci. Yep. And they even talk about it in the uh, in the play in the movie uh, Jersey Boys, uh, where they talk about you know Pesci bringing Gaddio and uh, Valley together, and they go, "Yeah, Joe Pesci. Yep, that Joe Pesci." So he's had a very, uh, very varied life. And uh, my guess, and I'm just, I don't want to, I'm not trying to slander the guy, but my guess is just watching Jersey Boys and the fact that Frankie Valley and the gang, you know, had a little bit of a connection with somebody who had a connection with the mob you know Pesciel probably had some real experience either good or bad with people that were uh, that were gangsters and that probably actually helped him shape uh, his persona when he does play a member of the mob but I think I think he's one of the best actors we've had even though you know he's not your typical leading man type no, he's not here, but here's the thing about Joe Pesci. If you look at his body of work, and it's not extensive, extensive. It's not like this guy's done 150 movies, but the movies he has done, for the most part, uh, the majority of them are extremely memorable. Uh, and I would just, I am really fascinated how an actor who really was not big in the limelight, he's not one of those guys that went on every talk show uh, and, 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 and aspired to have a microphone in his face and was self-aggrandizing or publicizing, because he really was not that. So when he did a movie like Goodfellas and then Casino, uh, like what, how, where did he go in his mind uh, to be that menacing and actually frightening uh, uh, playing a cat? He was frightening as those two characters uh, in, in a feature film both directed by Martin Scorsese. So like, where did he get, where did he get that from? Uh, I, I think, and then you look at a, him doing Leo Getz in the Lethal Weapon movies, the the in two and two three, uh, how good he was in in, in and four, how good he was in in those movies, and obviously Home Alone is one of the wet bandits opposite Daniel Stern. Uh, you know, it's interesting because when he did a movie like say The Super, where uh, I mean, I'm, my cousin Vinny was a big uh, comedic hit. That's another one of his classic. But like when he did a movie like The Super, you know, it didn't work out as well. I still found it entertaining because I enjoy Joe Pesci. But uh, really, one of the more interesting talents I, I think in the history of film, no doubt about it. Yeah, and I think when he was doing Casino and uh, Goodfellas, I think where he went was North Jersey. Maybe that's a book to be told sometime, and hopefully uh, we'll see it. Some other news of interest. Uh, I would expect this actor, Jonathan Majors, who plays the villain in Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania, to really blow up in a good way over the next few months. Not only is a villain in this film, which he's getting great notices, he will be the, uh, the heavy uh, opposite uh, Michael B. Jordan in Creed Three, which comes out on March uh, third, you know, they're really starting to kick up the promotional uh, campaign for Creed 3. It's going to be interesting to see how this movie fares without the presence of, a, of Sylvester Stallone, Rocky Balboa, who will be the, the first time Rocky will not be involved in a Rocky or Rocky spinoff film. Uh, I've heard some stuff, don't know if it's true, possibility, will they have killed off the character of Rocky Balboa off-screen? Uh, when Creed 3 starts. I, I got to tell you, I hope not, because I always want to hold out that possibility 
that uh, Stallone will return in some form, whether it's his own film, will come back in a Creed movie, is Rocky, but that's not the direction they chose to take. I mean, it's pretty well known now that Sylvester Stallone uh, and the producer, Erwin uh, Winkler, had a, had a massive fallout over the future of this franchise and the profitability and, and points and, and all that stuff, and sort of a bummer to see. But uh, I, I'm sort of looking forward to, to Creed three because I think they have cut good trailers, and I am interested in the direction they take this character of Adonis Creed. Uh, did, have you seen the last two Creed movies or no? I, I, I have not. I, I, in fact, okay. I, don't, I don't think I saw the last uh, three Rocky movies either. But, uh, I, you know, for me, if they make, if the decision's been made that he's not going to be in the movies, if there's not really a role for him in the movies going forward, then I hope they do kill him off only because it stops people from, but it, well, it stops people from thinking, oh, well, maybe he'll come back. And you know what? Rocky took a lot of hits in his life. And whether it was CTE or whatever, um, Rocky probably would be kind of feeble by now. Uh, and um, you know, maybe, maybe if you have him die off screen because of something that came from the boxing career, you work that in to concerns that that Creed has going forward in his career. So I think there's a lot of ways creatively you can yeah, use his death. I understand what you're saying. I just think over a 40-year period since uh, almost, you know, four, almost 50 years since 76, the original Rocky, I just think uh, it, it's, a very it's a very perplexing, uh, touchy, dicey uh, issue, to, to say the least. Uh, you're talking about one of the most iconic Pop, pop culture characters of all time and how you would handle uh, that uh, in the terms of a creative decision who ultimately uh, pulls the trigger on doing something like that. We'll see how it uh, pulls out. Some basic movie news of interest. Disney reported the quarterly report uh, the, the other day. Bob Iger, who's back as CEO, came out and said that the company will target a $5.5 billion cost-cutting measure uh they're going to drop 7,000 jobs overall from the company says that disney plus uh is on target uh to be profitable sometime in 2024 which is a, which is a prediction that they have made over the last few years it's been a few analysts that says this is not going to come into fruition in 2024 but uh disney's still one of the most prominent companies certainly most powerful hollywood studio they got the theme park so on and so forth but uh that is a pretty big cost-cutting measure, $5.5 billion and 7,000 job loss. Ken, thoughts on that one? Well, it, it is, and I, I do think they'll be profitable, by the way. And uh, uh, what they're doing is they're growing, growing subscriptions, and you have a lot of startup uh, deductions you take, which are you know skewing profitability, and I have a lot of faith in Iger. I'm a little bit disappointed. You know, Donald only has two nephews now, Huey and Louie. They fired Dewey, and, uh, well... <laughs> Yeah, Snow White only has four dwarfs. So, uh, you know, some of the cuts maybe were a little bit too deep. We'll see uh, We'll see how that uh, plays out. As we speak, I still say the most, the only profitable streaming service is Netflix. All the other ones are considered uh, middling, uh, past the start of phase, but not to the finish line. They all believe they're going to be profitable, and this is the wave. They're going to continue to bang the drum. But I still think... In the next couple of years, I, I think you're going to see a reversion to a lot more people going back 
into movie theaters and they come to grips with the reality that uh, going to the movies is like American Pie and baseball uh, and it's here to stay. Maybe it's wishful thinking on my part, but that's what I would like to see. Now, this week in movie history, Ken, uh, 1974, this week, Mel Brooks' Blazing Saddles uh, premiered in Burbank, California. The people who watched that premiere sat on horseback to watch it. It became uh, one of the biggest hits of 1974. Obviously, an edgy movie. Uh, something uh, the woke crowd uh, in 2023 probably would not uh, accept. But uh, it was big in 74. Mel Brooks had uh, Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein both in the same year. Uh, you can't get a better life than that, Ken. No, you can't. And I'm one of those crazy people who love Blazing Saddles, and I wasn't as big a fan of uh, Young Frankenstein. Okay. But as I've said before, I first saw Blazing Saddles on a Monday night after a, my shift at SS Kresge number 92 in downtown Scranton, and I saw it with my best friend at the time in high school, Tommy Ross, who was African-American. And uh, he laughed more than I did. You know, for people who don't get the get 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 the the uh, the serious social commentary that Brooks was trying to make about uh, the ridiculousness of uh, the inferior uh, and, and, and 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 pathetic mind, uh, and, and that movie was extremely funny. I, I do 100 percent agree. Also, this week, and you, uh, did you know that Brooks yeah. only cut one scene when the uh, when the producer said that it was you know too far off? There was only one scene that was cut. You know what one that was? Oh, what was it? You know, you know that scene where they turn the lights go out when uh, when Bart and Lily von Stupp are together. Remember that? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And and she goes, "It's true, it's true." And it, this is true, folks. That there was a line then where he goes, uh, "Yeah, you're sucking my arm." <laughs> I get why they might have cut that one out. Oh, uh, I, t- these days that would be these days that would be on primetime television. New York City, Disney premiered uh, its live-action Pinocchio in New York City. I gotta tell you, that brought back a memory when I looked at that, because the first feature film uh, in a movie theater my parents ever took me to see was a re-release of Pinocchio, and I gotta tell you, it scared me. I remember it scaring me, uh, the, the, the jackass scene and, and that movie. Uh, and then that's the effect a lot of the Disney movies had on your childhood, especially when you saw them uh, in a theatrical release. But then I remember, like, I'm trying to jog my mind, what was some of the first memories my parents, uh, first movies my parents went to, to took me to see? And I, they, they always took me to see a lot of R-rated movies, but I do remember, I think the second movie after Pinocchio that I saw in a theater with my parents was uh, Neil Simon's The Odd Couple uh, with, with, uh, with, with Jack Lemmon and uh, Walter Matthau. I do remember. I do remember vividly seeing that movie as my first live-action movie in a uh, movie theater. My first was Old Yeller. And that, listen, that was uh, that was not an easy movie to uh, watch. Talk about uh, the, the, the tear ducts flowing. Uh, very sad uh, last act. To, it was uh, old, old Yeller. Yeah, it was a birthday party for Jocko Lewis, so, um, well, who lived on the block as well. February 9th, 1968, uh, a little movie called Planet of the Apes opens uh, in, in New York City, goes on to become a critical uh, darling and a massive hit at the box office, one of my all-time favorite uh, movies. I, I saw this movie in a re-release uh, at the Avenue Movie Theater in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, I still think 
when they crash land in the first act in that spaceship with Heston and those two astronauts are in the water. I always say to myself, how the heck did they film that scene? It was all all uh, exterior shooting on, on outdoor locations, which is something that killed the Tim Burton version with Mark Wahlberg when they shot the entire movie on sound stages, which I thought was disastrous and preposterous. But boy, oh boy, the scope in the original Planet of the Apes was uh, uh, amazing. Charlton Heston was uh, was born to play uh, Colonel Taylor, a uh, very skeptical uh, but yet thought-provoking character, one of my favorite characters of all time. What an ending written by Twilight, uh, Twilight Zone's Rod Serling with the stat- with the uh, Statue of Liberty, iconic, iconic stuff. Uh, your thoughts on Planet East from 1968? Well, first of all, that might be the ultimate shock ending. And uh, second yeah. of all, of course, I always love to mention that the uh, girl who played Nova is from nearby Berlin, Maryland, here when I'm at the, uh, down here Harrison. in Ocean, Ocean Linda Pines. Harrison. Linda Harrison. Yes. So uh, it was, uh, to me, as I told you before, I've, I went to see that movie with my friend Timmy on a Saturday at the Strand Theater in Scranton. I'm sure we sat through it at least twice. And just absolutely great movie. Great movie. This week in uh, movie history, February 9th, 1979, Walter Hill's The Warriors opens in theaters. Uh, creating a lot of controversy, gang violence erupted in theaters, which pulled uh, the marketing campaign. Uh, well, the studio was forced to pull a marketing campaign to tone things down. Uh, that movie, I remember when it came out. I do, I did not see it in the theater, but I remember all the buzz and the controversy, and a lot of the older kids in my neighborhood who went to see it. Tremendous buzz on that movie as a gotta go see movie, but it is interesting that you could uh, cultivate a movie and create a marketing campaign that gets the uh, street gangs into uh, movie theaters. I know they want patronage, but uh, that's probably not the patronage that they wanted at the time, Ken. Yeah, well, that and the other problem is after West Side Story, you started having street gangs going to the ballet, and it just wasn't the same. No, because you don't, that, that, that you're meshing two totally different demographic audiences, and I understand why that would not work. One other one, 1976, February 8th, Taxi Driver, directed by Martin Scorsese, hits theaters starring Robert De Niro. Uh, uh, what a great movie. I was telling you uh, off air the other day uh, how much I liked uh, Sybil, Sybil Shepherd in that movie. Uh, I, I thought she should have had a bigger and brighter movie career, but uh, she did very well on television. And when she was in features like this movie, I thought she was very uh, effective. Uh, big, big fan of... Uh, Taxi Driver, and when they say they don't make movies like that anymore, Ken, and this is the rawness of 70s filmmaking, this is a prime example of uh, that exact uh, quote. Yeah, and I think actually in her case, I think the silliness around moonlighting hurt her career more than Bruce Willis. Yeah, I mean, I think what's interesting about it, she, she, was, uh, she was able to play uh, light comedy uh, in banter, and she was very good uh playing off a male lead. I thought that was her, her strongest suit. I mean, Moonlighting did ver- did very well, obviously. Him and her and Bruce Willis, uh, I, I guess, evidently didn't get along very well, but uh, he, he got uh, Sunset, Bruce Willis with James Garner, and then right after that, Die Hard, and the rest is movie history. But I, I do think her career was still a, a good one, and I, I was a, uh, I certainly was a fan. Let's talk about Yellowstone. Big story. Uh, that broke this week before we bounce into our main topic of our top 10 
favorite supporting roles in in film. Big story this week broke by uh, Deadline Hollywood Daily, then picked up by all the major trades, including the Hollywood Reporter. It's evidently that uh, Kelly, uh, Sheridan, the creator of this massive new now franchise over at Paramount, Paramount Plus, uh, is going to create a spin-off show of Yellowstone, which will star actor Matthew McConaughey. Yes, the Oscar-winning actor Matthew McConaughey, who very well could replace Kevin Costner as the main uh, cog in this franchise. I guess Costner went back to the producers and said that he wants to work a lot less, work, have his workload drop a lot less, which, uh, according to his report, has irritated fellow cast ma- members, irritated the producers and the creator Sheridan. So there is a strong possibility, according to this report, which I think has a lot of viability, that they will end the main show Yellowstone at the end of the season, uh, introduce Matthew McConaughey as a main character, spin him off into his own show, and then take a lot of the main characters from Yellowstone and put it into that show, thus leaving Kevin Costner's character either in limbo or killed off. I hate to hear this story because it always is a bummer when something is very successful and you have a lot of ego involved. I know Costner's filming a massive personal uh, pet project western uh, as we speak, and I guess he needs time to do that, but they feel he had a commitment to something that was very popular and really helped his uh, very successful career to elevate it into a higher level at this stage. Uh, I guess this there's some sour grapes of bad feelings here. I hope they can sit at the table, work this thing out, Ken. But uh, uh, in terms of television, just a big story. It, it is, but you know, I, I first of all, I, I sort of feel for him because you go into doing a a series, and it, I mean it's a limited series, but it is that you know the the episodes are an hour long, and you're doing eight episodes or whatever it is a year. They've did fifty three in the first five years, so I guess it's a little bit over ten, and. You you don't necessarily expect it to go beyond five years. It's maybe, what it's maybe. what we've seen with people that that's what happened. You know, Big Bang Theory, Mom, and other shows where it's just like, hey, I've done this long enough. Anna Ferris left Mom in the last season because hey, I didn't expect to do this the rest of my life. Um, right, I get it. I, and they can they can very easily because he's going to become governor in in Yellowstone. They can very easily move him to a background role, which is what I hope they do rather than kill him. And the other thing, two things. One is, if you're going to have three different generations of this, of that family as cowboys, and you have Costner and Harrison Ford and McConaughey, how could you have ever done any better casting? I mean, it's just no, amazing. They got, that, they got that right. And, and, and you know, I, I, as we said over there, uh, not, uh, we said before on air, it, it, this uh, Yellowstone, to me, feels so much... Like uh, what CBS did with Dallas back in the late 70s and early 80s. To have a, a tremendous cast, very good writing, uh, raw, hard-hitting, adult-type storylines. And it's a formula uh, that has worked extremely well and is cultivated with the masses. As This is one of the most popular television shows uh, on, on TV. Certainly, uh, Paramount Plus put it on the uh, map. Yeah, and, and we, know, we know that there is going to be a spinoff at the Texas ranch where Jimmy has gone to work. And the other thing, and might, some people might think it's sacrilege, Yellowstone jumped the shark. They've, they've killed far too many people, and even somebody as powerful as John Dutton would not have gotten away with the amount of violence that they've had at this point and the number of murders. So maybe resetting it, getting it into a different location, 
not having as much murder might actually make it a better show. We'll, we'll see how this uh, plays out. But like I said, I, I sort of hope, I, I don't know, I'm, a, I'm a, an eternal optimist about uh, human behavior. I do, I do hope that somehow they could make amends and shake hands and work this out uh, in the best possible light. Because you hate to see something so successful uh, be, be tarnished by um, a disagree, disagreement of uh, ego. Never a good thing. Uh, okay, Ken, let's bounce into our main topic, which is our top 10 uh, favorite uh, supporting turns of movies that we recommend. Again, I could have 300 uh, picks on my list, but I, I, off the top of my head, for the most part, I popped 10 out of the craniums of the back of my mind. So I'll, I'll, I'll start with my 10 through 6. My number 10, I went with the character of Peter Vincent, played by Roddy McDowell in the 1985 fan-favorite Fright Night. I thought he was brilliant. Casting did a great job bouncing off uh, actor William Ragsdale and uh, Chris Sarandon, who I think is one of the greatest vampires in the history of film. Roddy McDowell played this character to a till, uh, to a T. He was just pitch perfect, uh, emphasizing a sort of frightened, scared persona of a late night talk show host, uh, a late night talk show uh, vampire hunter who gets the job in real life uh, against his will. I, I just love uh, Roddy McDowell in this movie. My number nine, I went with Sam Jackson uh, as Mitch Hennessy in the, the 1996 action movie, The Long Kiss Goodnight. I thought his banter with Gina Davis was awesome. I just screened this movie last Sunday night for the ESU, East Strasburg University lacrosse girls uh, team. They didn't know what they were going to watch before I screened it. I always do a surprise screening for a lot of the sports teams. So popcorn, soda, milkshakes, uh, and, and, and smoothies. Uh, they were having a great time. They said, what are we going to watch? I said, you're going to watch one of the best action movies of the 90s with a great female lead in Gina Davis. And uh, I watched it too. And I tell you, this is one of the most underrated films of the 90s. Written, uh, uh, directed by uh, Rennie. Holland, uh, written by Shane Black. What a great movie. Uh, and Sam Jackson, in one of his best performances, really does a great job in this movie. Number eight, I went with um, Rebel Wilson as Fat Amy in Pitch Perfect. Boy, is she a great supporting character and very, very funny. Holds her own, very confident in her comedic skill. Uh, I love me some Rebel Wilson as Fat Amy in Pitch Perfect. That's my number eight. Number seven, one with actress Chloe Mortez, who was, I think, 14 years old when she played Cindy uh, McCrady, hit girl in the movie Kick-Ass. This is an iconic character that is uh, one of the best pop culture superheroes in the history of film. So Chloe Mortez is hit girl, my number seven. And my number six, I went with, it's very interesting because it popped in my head. And then the Walsh played a character named Richard, uh, Richard Dirks in a movie called Clean and Sober, uh, 1988, opposite Michael Keaton, about a guy, Michael Keaton plays a businessman who embezzles money, has a serious alcohol and drug problem, goes into rehab, not to get clean, but to hide, and ultimately meets the supporting character played by M. Emmett Walsh as his uh, drug and alcohol sponsor. M. Emmett Walsh has been in over 233 movies, some of them include Escape from the Planet of the Apes, uh, Serpico Airport 77, and he was a swimming coach at Back to School. He's never been finer as an actor. 
he should have been nominated, in my opinion, for Best Supporting Actor. So I love that performance by N.N. Walsh in Clean and Sober in 1988. That is my number six, Ken. Great list, great list. Hey, I, I, I start with number 10, Allison Janney from 2018's I, Tonya, the story about Tonya Harding. She played Lavana. She plays a powerful, realistic mother in that show. She Basically, her role from mom on steroids. Allison Janney, I just think she's one of the uh, better actresses in, in Hollywood, whatever she does, whether it's Chicago Hope or it's mom. And uh, I really liked her in that. I'm a big fan of that. That's a really good pick. Uh, she was nominated for Best Supporting Actress. I, I thought she was really, really super good in that film. I, I, I totally agree. Joel Grey, 1972 Cabaret. He plays the MC. Not quite as raw as Alan Cumming did on Broadway, but this was 1972. Plays the role with mystery, ambiguity, but also with a comedic side. It's a very difficult role trying to convey everything that does. He did it perfectly. Joel Grey was... He was, he's absolutely perfect for two roles he's had. That and as Mr. Cellophane in Chicago. Uh, you know, Joel Grey, uh, he was a perfect uh, actor-performer for the, this time period. Uh, very talented guy. And, and uh, he did great work in the movie Cabaret, which was one of the critically acclaimed movies of uh, 1973. Right, Ray Ralston, uh, South Pacific. He plays Luther Billis. You know, every, every Army movie or Navy or military movie, shall I say, even musicals, has to have that scheming guy who can get you anything. He's trying to get there to the Boretooth ceremonial because he wants to trade. Also, he understands the women at the ceremonial are naked. Uh, just, just absolutely great uh, performance by Ralston. Uh, he does very well in the singing numbers he has to do. And, of course... He was known to, in my generation, for my favorite Martian, as the Martian. He was. And also, <clears> uh, a lot of fans listening to this show might know him as Mr. Hand in the, uh, the, the, the classic uh, Fast Times at Ridgemont High. And he's also a big prominent part of the classic great miniseries uh, based on the Stephen King novel, The Stand. Uh, I love these from Ray Walston. I think he's a fantastic, fantastic uh, was a character actor, tremendous talent. I was a little bit uh, surprised to find out that number seven was a supporting actor, but then I saw he was nominated for Best Supporting Actor for his role in The Fugitive in 1993, because if you say The Fugitive to me, I don't think of Harrison Ford first. I think of Tommy Lee Jones playing the U.S. Marshal Sam Gerrard. I think he was the highlight of that movie. I think he's what made that movie so special. And Tommy Lee Jones is just one of those actors, whether he's you know doing Men in Black or he's doing something like this, he always brings a different level to his role. I agree. You know, here's what's interesting about Tommy Lee Jones. He has obviously, uh, by all accounts, he has a reputation of being really difficult to work with. I mean, one of the worst movie sets and some of the stories that came out was when he worked with Joel Schumacher on uh, the set of Batman Forever, where he played the character of, of Two-Face. But... As an actor, uh, he is a very unique, interesting screen presence. And yeah, I agree, uh, Harrison Ford uh, you know, had, has an actor with a ton of star power, but Tommy Lee Jones d does steal The Fugitive, and that's why they gave him the spin-off film, U.S. 
Marshalls, but if you take a, even a movie as Bad Guy Turned and Under Siege, which is the best movie Steven Seagal ever did, and one of the reasons is because uh, of Tommy Lee Jones uh, being so charismatic and interesting, is that movie's villain. Uh, I just watch, uh, I, buy a, I bought a series of movies on Amazon Prime that I watch on my ice cream parlor when customers are there. One of the movies I watch is Volcano, right, from 1997. And when you watch that movie, you could argue, oh, it's a throwaway movie, it's a disaster film. Tommy Lee Jones probably got a nice paycheck to do, but, you know, his pairing with Anne Heche is very appealing. Uh, he's good playing a father in that movie. Uh, he's not, he, he may not have what they call classic George Clooney movie star looks, but what he does have is he has an interesting look. He's got tremendous intangibles. He's a tremendous actor, and uh, everything he's done, uh, he's one of those people elevates it to a much higher level. Uh, his career has uh, been set as one of the best in the history of Hollywood, I think. Right, absolutely. Number, not, number six, he has 182 credits to his name in IMDb. I think 170 of them are one or two episode appearances on TV shows. He was a regular on Room 222 with Karen Valentine a long time ago. Wow, in, that jogs the memory, that name. But in 2002, he plays Gus Portacolis at Michael Constantine, My Big Fat Greek Wedding, The Windex Man. He is the one, along uh, along with the aunt, you know, you don't eat meat, I'll, I'll make a lamb. They're, they're the ones that made that movie, and it was a case where I think the supporting actor of Michael Constantine was a bigger factor in that movie than either of the leads. You might be right. Now, and I would say, like, when I think of him uh, as an actor, two words that popped in mind would be likable and, and trustworthy. He just had, or He had an aura of those, those two factors, which is a good thing. Absolutely, and descended from Alexander the Great as well. Okay, uh, so that's your 10 through 6. It is. I'll let you bounce into your number 5, and then we'll do one at a time. Okay, number 5, Oprah Winfrey, Sophia Johnson, 1985, The Color Purple. Of course, her character starts off very sassy. She gets beat up. She becomes very subservient. Comes back to being sassy again. Color Purple was a movie that was really trying to show what life was like in Jim Crow uh, South, and it did a very good job of it. Uh, it's a great movie. It shows the victimization of black people even after they were quote-unquote freed. And it was really the thing that launched her billion-dollar career. Yeah, I mean, listen, I think Oprah Winfrey, a lot of people would have liked to see her do more acting work on screen when she did. She was always extremely effective. Obviously, one of the biggest names in, in, in our generation's pop culture. That was a terrific movie. That's a good pick, Ken. My number five, I went with... Uh, I went with the character of Hobson, played by John Gielgud, uh, in the movie Arthur in the 1980s, opposite Dudley Moore. I, I just thought uh, what he brought to this character was uh, so many good intangibles. His dry, sensey humor playing off Dudley Moore was absolutely brilliant. Uh, it's one of my favorite all-time supporting characters. I love Arthur. It's a movie that people went to movie theaters back in its day and had a great time, laughed, the repeatability of this movie and quoting the lines was off the charts. Uh, I guess the humor of alcoholism was not as funny in Arthur 2 because that movie uh, felt tone deaf and uh, it wasn't the hit that Arthur was. But Arthur, back in its day, was a great movie and John Gielgud as Hobson uh, made that movie great. So that's my number five. My number four, the man was, he's a mountain of a man. Michael Clark Duncan played John Coffey 
in 1989's Green Mile. Um, he, you know, the perfect gentle giant. We know he was innocent of the murder. You know, it has that supernatural aspect to it. Uh, he he created a little bit of humanity on death row. And yeah, that is a Tom Hanks movie, but he got tremendous support from Michael Clark Duncan. Listen, I'm a fan. I think what was interesting about that movie is it's directed by Frank Darabont. Now, he did the Shawshank Redemption, and then he does, which is also based on a short story by Stephen King. Now, when you add supernatural elements to a story and you got Tom Hanks as your lead and all those actors uh, in that film were at the top of the game, and that was one of the most pivotal roles to cast. Who are you going to cast is John Coffey because it has to be guy who has a massive heart, who has a connection with the audience, that the audience can sympathize, and they really did catch lightning in a bottle with a relatively unknown actor and Michael Clark Duncan, who is great uh, in that movie. And, and again, that's one of those movies when it comes on TV, like Shawshank and like a lot of fan favorites, like The Godfather, movies like that, it just has one of those, it hooks you and it's repeatability and easy watch are an absolute pleasure. That is a really good pick. I was a fan. I, you know, it was a bummer to see him pass, but uh, what a nice guy and a good talent in a great movie. My number four, I went with Martin Sheen as the character of Greg Stilson in a tremendous supporting turn in the uh, David Cronenberg 1983 movie, The Dead Zone, which is also based on a Stephen King novel. To me, my favorite Christopher Walker performance is Johnny Smith, a guy that has the power of second sight. By touching somebody, he can see the future. What I like about this supporting turn in this character of Greg Stilson, Ken, is that he's not prominent in this movie until he pops up about halfway through and then has resonance and power in the last act, playing a politician who's running for senator, that when Walken's Smith character touches him, shakes his hand, sees that he wants to get elected for the sole purpose of getting a hold of the nuclear codes to end the world and start World War III. It is a powerful sequence. Martin Sheen has never been better. It's just a great, it's what you call the reason supporting characters are written into movies. I love The Dead Zone. That is my number four, Greg Stilson. Okay, since we're starting to run out of time, I'm going to do my number three. You know, if, you, if, you're listen, if you're listening to this show and you don't know why Claude Rains is on this list, number three, for Captain uh, Renault in Casablanca, then you probably aren't really a big movie fan. He's amoral. He won't take a stand until he does. The movie, of course, ends. Louis, this could be the start of a beautiful friendship. He was just the perfect counterfoil in that movie. Just the perfect um, person to play both sides. Claude Rains, Casablanca, Louis Renault. Good pick. My number three, I went off out of the box here, uh, and it just popped in my head, but I want Reginald Vell Johnson, who played Sergeant Al Pal in uh, the best action movie of all time, Die Hard from 1988. Bruce Willis, iconic as John McClane. Uh, Alan Rickman, iconic as Hans Gruber. But Reginald Vell Johnson doing work off screen with the with the McLean character and that banter and ultimately bond and connection leading into the last act. I think it's great work uh, by Reginald Vell Johnson and I love the character of Sergeant Al Pal. So I put that as my number three, Ken. My number two was Eric von Stroheim, who was a, a director and a producer. He plays Max von Merling, who's an ex director who's now the butler for 
his ex-wife in Sunset Boulevard. And he just plays that role so well. You don't find out till very late in the movie that, in fact, he is the former director, Max von Merling, because as a butler, he's just referred to as Max. Plays it very well. No emotion. And it's just a great role for him. Plays off uh, Gloria Swanson and William Holden so well. So Eric von Stroheim for Sunset Boulevard, 1950. Really good pick. My number two, I, I didn't really try to go with villains on this list because I think we could do that at a separate time. Uh, and I don't think he's a villain. He's a very complex character uh, that I'm still trying to figure out when I do revivals and watch this again on the big screen. And I'm talking about Robert Shaw's Quint in Jaws in 1975. The, the last uh, act of that movie where he sort of sacrifices the other two ma uh, main characters and, and Roy Scheider, Brody, and uh, Richard Dreyfuss's uh, Hooper when, when he when he when he drives his his boat the Orker in reverse and, and kills the engine, basically uh, admitting defeat against the shark. Not only sacrificing his own life, he thinks, but the other two characters. I, I'm very perplexed at that choice. But what a great performance by Robert Shore and a great character in one of the greatest movies of all time. So number two for me, Quint uh, in Jaws in 1975. Great, great pick. Number one, you know, an officer and a gentleman, okay, Richard Gere is the star, but you don't, that movie isn't a success without Louis Gossett Jr., who plays gunnery sergeant Emil Foley, played that role with strength, but in, in some ways, humanity. Uh, I mean, I still remember the way he says Mr. Della Sera and the way he calls mayo mayonnaise, but he, he just played that role so well and uh, I think he helped make that movie so my number one because I really loved him in that role and I loved that movie I was disappointed a couple years later when he was in Enemy Mine and he's covered with lizard skin so you don't even know it's Louis Gossett Jr. but that's my number one pick for Officer and Gentleman that's a great pick that's just outside my top 10 I almost won with that I, I always say to myself in terms of Louis Gossett Jr.'s career because I love that movie I think he's awesome in that film. Uh, he won an Oscar for Best Supporting Actor. Uh, but did he catch, did he have the career that he should have after that movie? Wound up doing these Iron Eagle movies, which sort of B-movie ripoff of, of Top Gun. I think they did three of them. Uh, he did the, uh, another B-movie, which I thoroughly enjoy, which is The Principal. Uh, played a security guard opposite James Bellucci's Principal in that movie back in the, uh, in, in the 80s. But I think he should have had a bigger career personally he's a really good a really good actor by all accounts a good guy but his claim to fame and best performance on film i think and i agree with you uh is that movie i i they don't make movies like that anymore and i am a big richard Gere fan my number one was an easy uh, pick in the top of my head i went with the character of mickey mickey goldmill uh played by burgess meredith and rocky uh in the franchise but the first one in 1976 and the, the defining moment of that character played by Burgess Meredith, who a lot of people at the time knew from the Twilight Zone episodes and playing the Penguin and Batman, how or why Stallone or the producers, uh, director John Allison, wound up saying, okay, he's the guy for this role. What a perfect choice. But the role when he goes back to uh, Rocky's apartment and asks him to be the manager after Rocky is handpicked to fight for the heavyweight championship of the world, a relatively unknown who's most likely uh, going to lose in the first round 
and then they have that wide shot of Rock, where after Rocky throws him out of the apartment, Mickey's walking down the street, bummed out, and then Rocky runs after him, and they embrace, and they talk, and there's that that camera's uh, way out of range, and it's a wide shot. I think it's one of the best scenes in cinematic history, and, and, and Burgess Meredith owned that role, and I just adore him as Mickey in Rocky, so that, that was easily uh, my number one. And a great, great role, and uh, he played it very well. Hey, Chuck, it has been absolutely fantastic. Uh, always a pleasure, Ken, and to the audience. Thank you guys for listening, and uh, we'll be back at it next week. Thanks for listening to Movie Maniacs. Download one of our archived episodes. Be sure to subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts. Podcasts by Federated Media.